All right, guys. Well, Happy New Year, Two Cities. As Pastor Kyle said, my name is Johnson Waterer. I'm the Director of Family Ministries here at the church. Therefore, I bring you greetings from our kids' ministry. <laughs> guys, I gotta say, it's nice being able to be here on a Sunday morning, teaching, preaching to a group, and you're sitting still for longer than 30 seconds. <laughs> and no, we are not handing out goldfish at the end of this message. <laughs> Y'all go ahead and turn with me to uh, Psalm 1. It's the first psalm of the, of the book of Psalms. And as we know, the book of Psalms is a collection. It's a collection of songs and poems. And we categorize these songs and poems. We categorize them based on genre. So we have psalms of lament, psalms of praise. This psalm, Psalm 1, is a wisdom psalm. It's good for breathing truth into our lives and, and showing us who we are as individuals and most importantly, who God is in the way that he's revealed himself in his holy word. It's a wisdom psalm. When it comes to wisdom, we ultimately have two options. There's the world's wisdom, and then there's God's wisdom as it's found in his holy word. And it's interesting because we seek wisdom during specific moments, during specific seasons, times, events in our life where we are seeking to achieve the best possible outcome, the, the most desired outcome. That's when we look for wisdom in our life. But it doesn't take long to look over the course of human history to see that the world's wisdom is often wrong. How many wars? How, how many instances of corruption, abuses of power, failed governments does it take for us to see that when it comes to the world's conventional wisdom in handling these moments in time, you know, we as human, humans, we're not exactly batting a thousand on how we deal with these events. And if you want an example of it, I, I said that wisdom is something we look for during specific seasons. We're in one right now. It's the new year. And, and what happens every year this time of year? The world comes with its wisdom in seeking to ingrain into the life of the individual certain truths that come in the form of specifically two mottos, two slogans. The first, new year, new me. I'm gonna reflect over the course of my life this past year and looking ahead to this upcoming year, I'm gonna set goals. I'm gonna seek to achieve successes. Ultimately, what this motto is founded on is the idea of I'm going to transform myself into a new creation. Now, from the surface, this is a pretty harmless ideology to have. It's, it's good to set goals. It's good to want to achieve success. It's even good to seek to be transformed into a new creation. You could even make the argument that's a biblical principle. But the key qualifying question for us as we separate the world's wisdom and God's wisdom is by whose standard are we seeking to be transformed into? Because just like there's the world's wisdom and there's God's wisdom, there's also the world's standard and God's standard for our life. If you want a quick case study in this, go to a gym this time of year. Haven't been in a while, but I hear it's pretty packed. And why is that? Well, if it's by the world or by God's standard, it's to, to take care of heart health, to take care of your body. That's the temple so that you can glorify and praise God for as long as you possibly can on this earth. That's a great reason to go. But if it's by the world's standard, 
you hit up the weight machines and whatever those cardio machines are called, and you are doing so because you're trying to fit into that peak mold that the world has dictated is the pinnacle of the human condition and the human physique. This is what beauty truly looks like. And so we see that's the, the first slogan, the first motto that the world shows up with their wisdom in New Year's. The second, the more dangerous, the more harmful motto that the world brings around the new year is this year is my year. This year belongs to me, my dreams, my desires, my will be done. This is the anthem of a lost society. And last I checked, we are now in the year 2023 AD. Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, which means that this year and all the years before and all the years that will come after belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is the Alpha, the Omega, and the beginning and the end. No, this year is not our year. This year belongs to the author of space, matter, and yes, time itself. But it's our natural posture, isn't it? To, to try and take that which brings God glory and try to shine that glory on ourselves. So what do we do? How do we stop this? Enter Psalm 1. Here we're going to see several key insights that this distinguish the Christian's worldview from that of the secular perspective in applying wisdom in our life. So let's go ahead and just read how God is speaking to us and how we are to conduct ourselves always in the name of Christ. Let's read Psalm 1 together. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we come before you this morning and we dive into your holy word, I pray that it would indeed be your voice that is the loudest in this room. I pray that you would reveal to us the, the truths of your wisdom as you have revealed it to us in this first psalm. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So as I said, this psalm, it's, it's the first psalm. It helps set the, sets the theme for the entire book of Psalms. And it's a wisdom psalm. It's helpful for bringing truth into our lives and also revealing who God is in the way that he's revealed himself in his word. And I want us to just look at this first line, how this psalm opens up. It says, blessed is the man. I said that we as humans seek to apply wisdom to our life in order to achieve the best possible outcome, the, the highest or most desired outcome. That can be summed up in a word, blessing. We, we seek to use wisdom in order to gain blessing and the fullest extent of blessing is total satisfaction, which can be summarized in another word, peace. So we use wisdom to get to blessing, to be blessed, and that ultimately leads to true peace. 
We, we want to be blessed. We want to have an abundance of favor and joy that leads us to that place of peace. But we need to talk about this word blessed because this is another one that our society misuses a lot. For instance, you, you go to a car dealership. You buy a new car. You FaceTime your parents. You show them the new car. But you can't stop there. You take a picture of the car. You go on the interwebs, the social media sites. You start writing a post. You, you put the picture up there and you write a caption, just bought a new car. But you can't stop it there. At just the caption in the picture. No, you have to say, just bought a new car. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> just bought a new house. Hashtag blessed. I, I just went on vacation. I ate dinner. Hashtag blessed. I, I've got status. I've got fame. I've got popularity. I've got fortune. I bought a cat. <laughs> Hashtag blessed. Now, all those things, except the cat, I'm sorry, are blessings within themselves, of course. The issue is, is when we become so in love, so infatuated with the blessings that we forget to acknowledge the one who gave us the blessing in the first place. That, that's when we run into that age-old idolatrous issue that Paul writes about in Romans 1, where we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like us, material possessions, material wealth. We, we seek to take uh, worshiping the cre creator and instead worship the creation, worship the things around us. And ultimately this ideology is founded on this, this phrase. Hey everyone, look at me and who I am. But the Christian says, hey everyone, look at me and what the great I am has done in my life. Look at how God has saved me. Look at how God has transformed me. He can do it for you. And so that's my first claim about this opening line as we begin our study of Psalm 1. This, this phrase, blessed is the man, is first an invitation. And the invitation goes like this. Do you want to be blessed? Truly blessed? Then come closer. Listen up because everything that is about to follow in this Psalm is going to point directly to God's wisdom revealed in his holy word, specifically when it comes to being blessed in Christ Jesus. It's an invitation, but we would be remiss if we just stopped it there and said that it's only an invitation and only applies to our lives here and now. Because here's my second claim about this opening line. It's not just an invitation, it's also revelation. It's also speaking of a specific person when it begins its opening line. It says, blessed is the man. You can almost sense the gravity, the weight, speaking of the man of the moment. And I'm actually gonna allow an unlikely character to introduce who this blessed man is. If you were to go to John 19, five, you would read of how Pontius Pilate, as he's introducing Jesus Christ to the crowds, Psalm one begins by saying, blessed is the man. And in John 19, five, as Pontius Pilate's introducing Jesus Christ to the crowds, he says, behold, the man. 
This is not just an invitation, it's revelation pointing directly to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who is the standard of all righteousness, the standard of all blessings, and also the one who fulfills all righteousness and gives all blessings that we are able to enjoy in this life. That is who ultimately we are talking about. This is not an abstract concept as we seek to understand what it means to be blessed. We're talking about a person. We, we look to Jesus Christ as the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who is the blessed man. So that's the theme for us here in this Psalm. It's that, that we are invited to be a blessed man because of the blessed man, Jesus Christ. All right, let's keep going. The rest of verse one, it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. A couple things to note. Notice the digression of posture. The unblessed man. If this is what the blessed man doesn't do, this is what the unblessed man does. He goes from walking to standing to sitting. Also notice the company he keeps. The wicked, the sinner, the scoffer. We're gonna talk about those in a minute. What I want us to do now is actually go through just a rhythm here where we take a look at each one of these postures, each one of the company that the unblessed man keeps. And I want us to break it down, first defining our terms, just, just knowing what this Psalm is actually pointing to and talking about if we are called to be a blessed man because of the blessed man. And also seeing how the blessed man, Jesus Christ, has set the standard for how we are to conduct ourselves in this life. And so let's begin, it, it starts with that first posture. The blessed man walks not in the counsel of the wicked. What's the counsel of the wicked? In a word, temptation. It's the advice that the wicked give to those who are seeking to walk on that narrow path that leads to righteousness and instead leads them onto that wide path that leads to destruction. It's temptation. How does Jesus set the standard for how we are to deal with temptation? If you were to turn to Luke chapter four, you would see that Jesus has just been baptized. He's been led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness. He then fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And then Satan comes to him and begins to tempt him in three ways, turning rocks into bread, taking them to a high place, having them bow the knee if he would, and then he would give them the whole world and then taking them to the top of the temple, throwing himself off and the angels would catch him. But how does our Lord respond each and every time when temptation comes? He uses the sword of the spirit that is the word of God. He quotes scripture again and again and again. This brings me to my first question for us this morning. What temptation are you dealing with in your life? What temptation are you wrestling with? How, how do you sense the enemy seeking to gain a foothold over you and in your life? Some of you are here today and you have been tempted with the exact same thing for years because the enemy knows it works. Some of you may be here today and just recently you've begun to be tempted with a new thing that you've never had to wrestle with before. But suddenly the enemy's trying to deploy it against you in order to seek to bring you off that path that leads to righteousness and onto the path that leads to destruction. Furthermore, what, what counsel are you taking? What, what company do you keep? Who do you hang out with outside of work, church, and family? Who's, who's speaking into your life now? 
See, for us, temptation sounds the exact same that it always has since the fall in the garden. In Genesis 3, when Satan is tempting Eve, he first begins by saying, did God really say? Temptation begins by seeking to undermine the authority of God. Next, we see right before Eve takes of the fruit and eats, Satan says to her, oh, you will not surely die. Temptation begins with seeking to undermine the authority of God. It then moves into downplaying the consequences if we do sin against God and what that means. How are we fighting temptation in our life? Next posture, verse one. The blessed man does not stand in the way of sinners. What does it mean to stand in the way of a sinner? This is not a noble thing, okay? Don't, don't think about like a train coming down the tracks and there's a bridge behind you that's been taken out. You know that the, the train is facing impending derailment. So you stand in its way trying to flag it down and get it to stop. That, that's not what we're talking about here when we talk about standing in the way of the sinners. Now to stand in the way of the sinners is like, it, it, it's like when you go to Krispy Kreme. Just bear with me. <laughs> you walk in the door, you look through, there's that giant window, right? And what's through the, on the other side of that window? A wonderful conveyor belt filled with delicious donuts going through a wall of glaze. And they're all moving in uniformity with one another. They're all moving in sync with one another. If you weren't tempted before, you are a little bit now. Here's the deal. That's what it means to stand in the way of a sinner. It's to, to stand in uniformity with sinners like those donuts on the conveyor belt at Krispy Kreme. Next question, how does Jesus set the standard? Well, Paul writes in uh, Hebrews chapter four, starting in 14, going into 15, he says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ Jesus was tempted in the exact same way that we have been tempted in this life, yet he never sinned once. He lived the perfect life that we could not live. This brings me to my next question for us this morning. What sin are you wrestling with? What sin are you struggling to conquer? Some of you may be here and, and you may have been battling addiction for years now because the enemy has gained that foothold and he keeps attacking you and seeking to make you stray off that path. The good news is that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. How do I know that? Because Paul continues on in Hebrews 4 and 16. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are called for those who are in Christ Jesus to remember the grace, to remember the mercy, to remember the love that is extended to us, not because of who we are, not because of what we have done, but because of who Christ Jesus is and what he has done for us. And there's also a command there. If y'all remember when we were doing our book study in the gospel of Mark, Pastor Kyle would talk about how Jesus, when he was doing his healing ministries, he would first seek to meet their felt needs in order to then meet their forever needs. And so Jesus in his healing ministry, he would be, begin by going up to the individual, healing them, then forgiving them of their sin. And then what was the next thing he would say to them? Go and sin no more. Folks, that's not a suggestion. 
That's a command. And that's the standard that we are called to live into if we are to attain and if we are to seek to run after the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. It's not going to earn our salvation. Christ has already done that for us. But it is the standard of righteousness that we are called to live into as his followers. Last part of verse one. It says that the blessed man does not sit in the seat of a scoffer. What is the seat of the scoffer? It's the ultimate place of digression into sin where where one has delved so deep into the chasm of sin that they find themselves lost in the darkness and utterly hopeless. It's the place where the sinner has become so hardened in their heart Their heart is so callous, so turned to stone, and the weightiness of sin has been plaguing them for so long that all they can do is just sit and scoff. Sit and mock. Why? Because sinners do not like to be left alone. Because when sinners are left alone, they are forced to face their shame and guilt and iniquity and unrighteousness that has come by way of their sin. No, sinners do not like to be left alone. They like to be in good company. And so they tempt others, essentially, to sit in the seat of the scoffer is to become the counsel of the wicked, to become the one who tempts others to stray off that path that leads to righteousness and onto that wide path of destruction so that when you sit in your sin, you can look at the others around you to your left and to your right and you can say, see, they did it too. And you can begin to feel better about your sin. My question for y'all this morning is as you walk into this worship center, as you come through those doors, as you sit here in this seat, is yours not the seat in a sanctuary, but the seat of a scoffer? Have you been dragged here by a loved one, by a spouse, by a friend, and you're sitting around during this time and you're looking around going, are these people really taking this seriously? Are they really going to listen to this old book to find their source for truth? Friend, you can have peace. How do I know that? Because Christ has brought peace by the blood of his cross. Where do I know that? It's found in the same place that the blessed man finds his delight and his foundation verse two. It continues on. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. I want to split up this verse into two parts. First part, that the blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord. What's the law of the Lord? The the law of the Lord is this. It's the source of God's law. It's the source of God's commands. It's the source of God's instruction. And it's the place that he breathes truth and life to us. It is the eternal word of God. It's the Bible in your lap. That's the law of the Lord. And we read of how the blessed man delights in it. Another word that we don't use very much in our society. Happiness doesn't quite capture it. Joy is getting much closer. To have delight in something is to have total satisfaction in the source itself. So for the blessed man to find delight in the law of the Lord means that his satisfaction is not found in anything in this world, but is only found in the eternal word of God. 
Next part of verse two, it says that on his law, he meditates day and night. What's one other thing we do day and night? No, it's not eating. I know it feels that way. We just got out of holiday season. We breathe. We breathe day and night. We breathe in, we breathe out. That's how we as Christians are called to be with the word of God. We breathe it in. We breathe it out. We consume this word. We read this word. And when we're not reading this word, we're thinking about this word. And when we're not thinking about this word, we study this word. And when we're not studying this word, we share this word. And when we're not sharing this word, we apply it to our lives and how we conduct ourselves on a daily basis. That is how we are called as followers of Jesus Christ to interact with the word of God. Last year, I had the, the pleasure of sitting under the teaching of Brother Paul Washer at the G3 conference. With regards to studying the word of God, this is how he put it. Throw yourself at the study of this word until when they cut you, you bleed the Bible. That's the call of the Christian. That's the mandate that we are given to commit ourselves to reading God's word each and every day. You want joy? Are you looking for happiness? It's in the word of God. Do you want to be satisfied? Do you want to have peace? It's in the word of God. Do you want to know truth? real truth. Do you want to know God's will for your life? It's in the word of God. Now we see in verse three, the posture that the blessed man does take. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. And now in verse three, we see what he does do. It says that he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. You don't have to, but you could almost like close your eyes and imagine this scene being played out before us. There's, there's this wide, vast meadow, and in the still meadow is running this, this stream, this creek, a, a brook through the middle of the meadow. And just yards away from this stream of water is this grand, tall, mighty oak tree. And this thing is not moving because its roots run deep into the fertile soil that is nourished by the streams of water. This is the Christian who commits themselves to the study of the word constantly. And when the storms come and the gusts of wind blow and the bitter seasons begin to set into the valley, the tree does not move because its foundations are strong. And when the storms in your life come, and they will come, because we're not promised an easy life, but we are promised a fulfilled one. The Christian who finds himself rooted and grounded in the word of God will remain. The key is not to try and get out of the storm. That would be as ridiculous as a tree trying to uproot itself in the middle of a hurricane. It would just fall over. No, the key isn't to try and get out of the storm. The, tree, the key is to try and remain and seek to remain strong and steadfast in the midst of the storm, knowing that your hope 
Your foundation, your peace, your future is not found in anything in this world. It's not found ultimately in this life. We are just pilgrims passing through. There is a light that we look toward and his name is Jesus Christ. And he is the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith and the essence of our righteousness and our salvation. That's how we are called to stay in the word. You want a new year's resolution? Read the Bible. And don't treat it like the gym memberships where you begin in January and February and then you get to Leviticus and you drop off in late February because the storms come in March. The the storms come the moment that the enemy senses that you are not grounded in the eternal word of God because the enemy is roaring around like a hungry lion. He comes like a thief in the night seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And it is only the individual whose life is informed only by God's word that we'll be able to thwart the temptations that the enemy seeks to set in our lives. Read the word. Final part of verse three, this last line we gotta talk about. We gotta address it really quick. It says, in all that he does, he prospers. We have to be careful here because we have to define what it means to prosper. Because again, there's the world standard and there's God's standard. The, the world standard would seek to define prospering based on material wealth and possessions. But what are we talking about here? It's, it's not measuring prosperity based on wealth and possessions. It's measuring prosperity based on God's definition of prospering. Unfortunately, this ideology has seeped into the American church today uh, of the idea of uh, defining prosperity based on the world standards. You, you know it under a different name. It's called the prosperity gospel, which dictates that health, wealth, and prosperity can be yours if you just believe enough. You can be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous if you just pray for the right things. And if you're not healthy, if you're not wealthy, and you're not prosperous, it's because your faith isn't strong enough and you must not be praying for the right things. Evidently, the disciples of this false doctrine, this false gospel have not spent a single minute in the New Testament. And I can't help but hearken back to the Apostle Paul's second letter to his young protege, Timothy, in chapter one, where he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings. This false doctrine of the prosperity gospel has allowed the American Christian to slip into a materialized coma that has left us dormant and hungry for more. So our definition of prosperity is not based on the world's standards. It must be based on God's standards. And what is God's standard for what it means to prosper? It's not in anything that we find in this world, although we may enjoy its comforts. Prospering, according to God's definition, is to dwell in Christ's righteousness, to bask in his righteousness, and to behold his glory in the way that he has revealed himself to each and every one of us who are in Christ. That's what it means to prosper. That's what it means when we speak of the blessed man prospering in all things. It's having that heavenly perspective rather than the worldly one. All right, four, five, and six, we're gonna clump together for sake of time. Uh, Verse four, it says, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. This raises a very important question. What is chaff? Guys, I Googled it. I looked it up. If you've read Ruth and Boaz, you know where I'm going with this. Chaff is the nubbins that you don't want in grandma's bread. It's the junk. 
So for those of you who don't fancy yourself a farmer because we're all a bunch of city folk, the farmer around harvest time would harvest the wheat crop. He would then bundle the wheat up and take it to what's known as the winnowing barn. He would take the crop of wheat into the winnowing barn and open the doors of the barn. And onto the threshing floor, he would throw the wheat. He would then take the winnowing fork, think American Gothic. He would then take that wheat and throw it up into the air. And what would come down is the good stuff that you want in grandma's bread. And it would come down because of its, its weightiness, because it was heavy, it was grounded in something. And so it would fall back down, the good stuff. But what would blow out was the chaff. The, the wind would drive the chaff out of the barn and blow it into oblivion. Here in this psalm, we are starting to get a sense of the eternal consequences that this passage is talking about. If you were to continue on into verse five, it says, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What is this talking about? This verse is beginning to literally draw the dividing line between those who are in Christ Jesus and those who are outside of Christ Jesus. What's it talking about? It's saying that those who are in Christ Jesus will have eternal life with him, dwelling in his presence, basking in his glory, able to be clothed in his righteousness. Those who are outside of Christ will not have such luxuries. No, they will be cast into the lake of fire where they will burn in hell, incurring the fullness of God's wrath forever. That is what it means to be chaffed, to be thrown out, cast out, and into the fire. And if that sounds severe, it's because it is. It, it speaks to the severity of committing one single sin against an all-holy, almighty, all-powerful God. That is the true consequence of sin. Moving on into verse six, there's hope. It says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God knows the way of the righteous, not only because he's the standard of righteousness, but because he knows the individuals. He has foreknown the individuals that he has set before the foundations of the world were even laid for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has a, it's not an intellectual knowledge. It's not speaking to just head knowledge. This word know is speaking of an intimate knowledge, an intimate relationship that God has with those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what it's speaking to. But it also signifies how are we to conduct ourselves? And we know that intellectual knowledge is not enough to save us. Jesus himself actually speaks into this in Matthew chapter seven, where he starts talking about, there will be some of you in the last days who come to me and you say, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do mighty works? But what will Jesus say to them in that day? Those who are outside of him, depart from me. I never knew you. It's important for us to grasp and understand the intimacy that comes through relationship with Jesus Christ as the one who's fulfilled all righteousness, the one who sets the standard of all righteousness and get this, the one who has secured all righteousness for his people. How do I know Christ has secured all righteousness? Because of Psalm one, verse one. It goes back to explain how Christ has done the work. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked and indeed 
Christ Jesus did not give in to temptation. He didn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but he did walk as a result of it. And what did the counsel of the wicked sound like that faithful day? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so he ascended up that holy hill. Next, it says that the blessed man doesn't stand in the way of sinners. And indeed, Christ never sinned. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners, but he does stand in the place of sinners. And how does he stand? Not like a tree by streams of water, but hanging on a tree from which streams of living water flow down that holy hill and clothe his people in pure grace and righteousness. Finally, we, we read that the blessed man doesn't sit in the seat of a scoffer and indeed Christ does not sit in the seat of a scoffer. No, while he hung on the cross, he heard the scoffers. He heard our mocking voice crying out among the scoffers. But Christ's seat is not a seat of a scoffer. No, his is the seat of an all-sufficient savior. His is the throne of a risen king. And here's the summons. We each have an eternal court date where, where we will be called to stand before God and answer for everything that we have done in this life. And if we are only relying on who we are and what we have done, none of us will be found righteous, not one. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who hold fast to the good news of the gospel message of his salvation, you will find a holy and eternal witness. He will stand up as one who has taken our punishment, as one who has taken our sin and as one who has paid our debt through the blood of his cross. Do you have an eternal witness in Christ? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter six, he says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Is this the day of your salvation? As you sit here, do you sense the Holy Spirit renewing, regenerating and revealing the biblical Jesus Christ to you as Lord and Savior? If so, would you fall on your knees, confess your sins and profess Jesus Christ as Lord? This is the good news of the gospel that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. It is now the year 2023 and the church will continue to proclaim the same truths that it has held to for millennia. Are you seeking blessing? True blessing. You're not seeking a possession. You're not seeking a process. You're seeking a person. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the blessed man. Do you know him? And more importantly, does he know you? Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbled by the grace that you have extended to us through our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has lived the life that we could not live, the one who has died the death that we deserved and the one who has raised to life so that we might live again in him. I, I pray that you would continue to imprint these eternal truths onto our heart as we head into this new year, that we would not be caught up or, or lose our focus on the things of this world, but rather we would 
only focus on you, only focus on the good news of the gospel, only focus on the righteousness that you have given us through your son, Jesus Christ. Be with us, Lord, and let us never forget that wonderful message, that good news that is Christ. Amen.